to be mostly in the book of Acts. If you have a paper Bible, you might want to flip there. We're going to be in chapters 2, 4, and a little bit of 5 today. So if you want to go ahead and flip there, if you're using electronic Bible, you can go ahead and flip there. Or if you're using our app, whatever you, show, whatever you see on the screen will show up on your app. Just click the picture at the top of the app homepage, and you'll be on the same digital page as all the rest of us. So we're in this series called Ignite because around here we have a metaphor for the presence of God that is the biblical metaphor. It's the metaphor of fire. Now, when God shows up in many times in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament, there's often some sort of representation of fire. We talked about that a couple weeks ago with the burning bush, Moses and the burning bush, or the pillar of fire that guarded the Israelites. Or in the New Testament, we've been in this passage in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit of God comes among the people of God, and when he shows up, there's like this visible awareness of little bits of flame above everybody's head. And so we're using the metaphor of fire the same way the Bible uses it to be a representation of God's presence in the midst of his people. And as we're going through this series of lessons, there are some verses that have been the foundation of what we're talking about. These verses are Acts chapter 2, the first verses, and then also the last verses. So we're going to put them up on the screen here. It says this at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they, talking about the disciples, about 120 followers of Jesus at this time, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then, when you get to the end of the chapter, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. It continues, it says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The question that we've been trying to wrestle with is what happens when the fire of the Spirit of God comes to rest on a group of people? What happens when the fire of the Spirit of God comes to rest on a group of people? And what happens is what we have just read. What happens is what we have just seen. They were together. The fire of the Spirit of God comes to rest on them. They're filled with the the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And as a result, they devote themselves to each other. That there is a relationship that happens immediately on the tail end of experiencing the presence of God. When two people experience the presence of God, they are drawn together. And this is what happens in the early church. This is what happens in the first days of the church. And we have focused for the past couple of weeks on a few characteristics. The first one that we talked about is just the awe of God understanding this fire, understanding this fire from God is such an incredible expression of his holiness, his goodness, his power, his awesomeness. Awe is the first response. The second response should be joy. Last week we talked about what it means to feel the fire of God in our midst. 
And I challenged you to be people of joy instead of the curmudgeonly people that the world thinks Christians are. You're church people. You're one of those people. You know, well, I shouldn't swear in front of you because you're going to make me feel all guilty and whatnot. Or, or whatever the case might be, the world perceives Christians as if we're the killjoys of the world. And yet, listen... We're the family of the forgiven. We're the people who've received the Holy Spirit of God. We're the people who are the heirs of the King of Kings, who, re- who rose from the dead. I mean, we should be the most joyful people on the planet. And so you should feel the presence of the fire of God expressed in joy inside of us. That doesn't mean you always have to feel, quote unquote, happy, but there should be an underlying joy that goes inside and beneath everything else. And today... We're going to get more practical. We're going to talk about what does it mean to live the fire of God? What does it mean to live it out in real life? I want to take you back to the passage that we just read in Acts, but I'm going to highlight just a couple verses from the end of Acts chapter 2. It says this, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now, listen, if I were to stand up in front of you and say the hallmark of Christianity is for you to sell everything you own, give all your money to the church, and show up at church every day, how many of you would sign up? (laughs) Right. The reason you wouldn't sign up is that none of this was imposed on them. None of this was someone saying, hey, listen, this is what you need to do. You need to sell all your property, you need to give it all to me, and you need to show up at church every day. No one said that. They just did it. Do you know why they did it? Because they wanted to. Now, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing that these people wanted to do this. Let me give you a little backstory. Okay, so you need to know kind of what was going on back in this particular time frame. We find out that all of this happened on the day of Pentecost. That was Acts chapter 2, verse 1. This all happened on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a feast that the Jewish people had once a year, about 50 days after Passover. So there was Passover, then there was 50 days, and then there was Pentecost, which stands for 50. And so 50 days after the Passover, they would have a second Jewish feast. They would all get together and they would celebrate this. And Jews from all over the ancient world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Well, it just so happens that on this particular day, when Jews from all over the world were gathered in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit of God shows up on the followers of Jesus and they begin to speak in languages they've never learned. Tongues, we're told. The problem is, or I guess the miracle is, that the people who were there from all over the ancient world heard the gibberish, but they heard it in their own languages. And they were like, wait a minute, how do these Jewish guys from Jerusalem know how to speak Parthian from where I'm from? And so there was this miracle where God was doing something where the people who were speaking didn't know what they were saying, and the people who were hearing it heard it in their own language, and God did this miraculous translation thing, and we, we pay most of our attention to that. What we don't pay attention to is at the end of the story, where right after the phrase says in the book of Acts, 3,000 were added to their number daily, we continue reading to, chapter, to verse 42, where it says every day they continued to meet together, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. We, we jump to that, and we don't realize this one very important principle. There were 120 people in the room who lived in Jerusalem. There were 3,000 people outside who did not live in Jerusalem. 
And 3,000 people decide they want to become believers. In fact, it might have been more than that. It could have been 3,000 households, because back then they only really counted the men. And so if the men were traveling with their whole families, then that would have been a lot more than 3,000. So now 3,000 people have just heard the message of Jesus. And here's the biggest problem. On the entire planet, there is one spot where you can hear about Jesus, and it's in Jerusalem. These people have just learned that a man died after claiming to be God, and then he rose again. That's enough proof. And then he levitated off the planet to return to heaven, and all the people around them are like, this story is cool. I want to know more about this guy. There's only one problem. There's no radio. There's no television. There's no internet. And so they all have to stay right there in Jerusalem, and 120 locals are now having to support 3,000 foreigners. Now, that causes problems. The smart thing to do would have been to get all those 3,000 people to sign a piece of paper, give us your email address, and go home. And we'll send you a weekly newsletter so that you can get information on the latest things we're thinking about Jesus. That's the smart thing to do. Sign up for our Twitter feed and get out of here. But that's not what they do. There's only one place on the planet where they can hear about Jesus. And so they stay. And now you've got 120 people who are trying to support 3,000 people. And it's because of that dynamic that they need to liquidate some assets. It's because of that situation that they have to sell property so they can get some cash, so they can pay, so that they can be hospitable to the people who are visiting. They're making sacrifices for the foreigners for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of this new thing where on one part of this planet, the Holy Spirit has begun to dwell with people. And no one wants to leave. No one wants to leave. And it's in that dynamic that we come to this place. Because in this place, we learn a couple important things. Number one, immediately after 3,000 are added to their number, we begin to learn that they are devoting themselves to something very important. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to prayer. The first thing is they devote themselves to learning more about this Jesus, but also to prayer. You see, at the heart of the new Christian movement was a recognition that human beings are not the top. At the heart of the new Christian movement was a recognition that God is real, that God cares about us, he loves us. At the heart of the new Christian movement was this realization that God has sent his son into this world that we could be forgiven. And they decided we are going to get together and make that everything. There's just one problem. You can devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching, and you can devote yourselves to fellowship, and you can devote yourselves to prayer, and you still need to eat. And you still need a place to sleep. And so here's the deal. The early Christian church, even though their heart was committed to learning more about Jesus, their hands had to be all about caring for one another. In fact, I would say the fundamental behavior of the early Christian church falls underneath the word selflessness. Selfless. Ness. Let me show it to you again with this passage from Acts chapter 4. 
Because we saw it in Acts chapter 2. It shows up again in Acts chapter 4. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Why were there no needy persons? Because from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sale, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down that word. The central practice of the early church was selflessness. And this shows up in a number of ways. In one way that I'm not, there's no blank for you to fill in today. It's just an obvious recognition. The first and foremost aspect of selflessness is a recognition that I'm not the top, that there is a God above me. And so I need to be in submission to God. I need to be in submission to the Savior he sent for me. That's the first thing. And that's why they devoted themselves to, to worship and to prayer, to recognize that they weren't at the top. But selflessness has a practical aspect that goes between human beings as well. And there are at least two principles, two practices that the early church did to maintain selflessness as their central behavior with relationship to each other. The first practice is this. They showed shared resources. They showed selflessness in shared resources. They said, my resources don't belong to me. My resources are available to all of you. And so if, I'm gonna, if I need to sell my house to pay for someone else's dinner, I'm going to sell my house to pay for someone else's dinner. They had this mindset that nothing belongs to me. Everything belongs to us together because we're in a family. And I know some of you think, well, that sounds really awkward or weird or something. I don't want to sell all my possessions and give it to the church. And I'll just flip the question for you a little bit. Have you ever made a sacrifice for a family member? Well, all of a sudden, that becomes no-brainer. Well, yeah, of course. There are all kinds of times when I have gone out of my way for a family member. There are all kinds of times when I've gone into financial hardship to lift up a family member. There are all kinds of times when I have made some sacrifices for the sake of a family member because that's what family does. We don't even think twice about it if you're in a good family. In fact, you even expect that if you ever have a hardship, they're going to do the same thing for you because that's just how family works. But somehow when it comes to the Christian family... We get ourselves a little out of the selflessness mode and into the maybe I shouldn't mode. But back then, they were sharing their resources completely. And the second behavior they demonstrated is they showed a selflessness of presence. Not presence with a T, presence with a C. There's something very interesting about this. Have you ever noticed that sometimes all you want is another human being in the same room as you? Have you ever been in that place where it's like all, you don't want them to talk to you. You, you, don't want them, you don't want them to look at you. You don't want them to say anything. You don't want them to smell funny. You, you've, got all, you've got all the lists of the things you don't want in them, in them or from them, but you kind of want them in the room. There's something powerful about the presence of another person. There's something very powerful about the presence of another person. And we all know what it's like to want that other person's presence, even if I don't know who they are. I want to flip the script for you a little bit to remind you that other people feel that way about you. 
Other people feel that way about you. They don't want you to talk to them, maybe. They don't want you to smell funny, but they really want you in the room. And sometimes the best thing you can do for a person is to just show up and to just be there. They might not need a hug. They might not need any talking. They might not need anything at all, but they just kind of want you to be there. And these early Christians said, listen, I don't care if I have no food. I don't care if I have no place to sleep. I know one thing and one thing only. If I go home, I don't have anyone who knows about Jesus with me. And if I stay here, I'm surrounded by people who know about Jesus. And so I am going to invest myself. I'm going to sacrifice my own comfort. I'm going to sacrifice all kinds of things about myself for this amazing risk of staying in Jerusalem, to be present with God's people. And every day they keep meeting together, not because, not because someone tells them to, but because they just want to. Now, I want to go a little deeper with this. Because when I was a teenager, I remember reading this passage in Acts chapter 2 and 4, reading the passage about how they didn't have any possessions of their own, reading this passage about how they sold what they had and gave it to the church, reading these passages about their communal kind of life, And I was also in the early stages of learning about global politics, and I began to realize, as a teenager, mind you, that communism was biblical. That doesn't get much of a reaction from you guys today. I wonder why there's no cheering or anything like that. I was also raised in the 80s to understand that communism owned nuclear weapons, and I was not interested in that aspect of communism at all. And so I was in the weird position. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my dad. I didn't tell my mom because I was convinced the Bible was promoting communism, and yet communism was the thing our whole country was, was against. And I was like, what in the world is going on with me? And then I got, I got a little older, and I was like, okay, so it's not communism in general. It's just communism in, in the church. You know, Christians are supposed to live together. We're supposed to open up our homes to each other. We're supposed to sell all of our properties. The church should have all the money. It's just communism within the church. I still didn't tell anyone because if you tell people that stuff, they look at you funny, especially if you're the son of the pastor and they think, what is this guy talking about at home with his children and what's the church going to be doing next month? And so, you know, I didn't really talk about it. And as I got older, I began to grow out of some of those things, some of those ideas because... A lot of us can get the wrong impression from Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 about what's really going on. We hear words like selflessness, and we think words like authority. We hear words like selflessness, and we think of someone needing to impose these things on us. I don't want to be selfless, but if God tells me I have to be selfless, well, then I guess maybe I'll be selfless. We think in terms of, I don't want to do it unless someone kind of makes me do it. I want to take you into Acts chapter 5. But before we get to chapter 5, we're going to finish up chapter 4 with just a few verses. So I I want you to see this. I'm going to actually read it straight from my text here. In the last few verses of Acts chapter 4, we see something amazing. I'm going to pick it up at verse 34. It says, There were no needy persons among them, For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, 
which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Clearly, Ananias must have told Peter that he was bringing to Peter all of the money. Because Peter identifies what Ananias has said as a lie. And he says that Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit about it. So then Peter says, Ananias, why this lie? And here's the interesting thing, verse 4. Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. If you continue in the story, you'll find three hours later, his wife shows up. And she comes into the room, and Peter is like, so, um, Ananias said this was the money you guys got from the sale. Was it the money you got from the sale? And she goes, oh, yeah, that's the money we got from the sale. And Peter goes, oh, my goodness, the guys who carried out your dead husband are standing right at the door, and they're going to carry you out too. And she falls down and dies as well. And then what happens after that? Guess what? The people who hear the story are freaked out. Yeah, because Peter just killed two people. Well, the Holy Spirit killed two people, but Peter's the one who acknowledged it was going to happen. So here's the deal. Here's the amazing thing about this story. I am fascinated by the fact in verse 4, Peter says to Ananias these words. I'm paraphrasing, but he says basically these words. Ananias, it's your money. You can do whatever you want to with it. He said, Ananias, you owned the field. It was your field. You sold the field. It was your money. You could have done anything with it. And you chose to lie. This is why communism in the church, outside the church, whatever, is not something the Bible is encouraging because there's no authority to this. There's no authority above the person saying you have to give the money here. You have to do this with your wealth. You have to do this. There's no authority above it. It's not an authority-driven structure. It is something completely different. Peter says you had the authority over your money. You could have done anything with it, and you chose to lie. See, Peter's not upset that he kept the money back. He's upset that he lied about it. Why in the world would Ananias have lied about this? Why in the world would he have done such a thing? Now, I've got my own speculations about it. I think maybe it's possible that Ananias was, was thinking some of the things that you and I think about, you know, what am I going to, what if I lose all of my wealth? I need to have a little bit of something in the, in the savings account. Maybe, maybe that's one of the worries that Ananias would have. Maybe for, for Ananias it was something different. Maybe he was interested in getting some public recognition. After all, we know that public recognition was acceptable, 
A guy named Joseph sold a piece of property. They called him Barnabas, son of encouragement. He becomes famous at least a little bit because of the fact that he sold the property and gave the money to the church. Recognition is not a sinful thing. Recognition is not a bad thing. Having money is not a bad thing. Having resources is not a bad thing. But lying to take advantage of the community of faith is a bad thing. And so when Ananias says whatever he says to try to gain a little bit of extra respect from the church while retaining something extra for himself, that's the problem. You see, he wasn't being selfless. In fact, he would... When you think about it, he was being kind of selfless. I mean, a little bit selfless. He was giving a lot of money to the church. He sold his personal property. He was giving a lot of money to the church. He was, it's not all the way selfless. It's just self-ish. And that's part of the problem, isn't it? It's just that, that little piece of saying, nope, I need to protect me. Nope, I need to look out for me. Nope, I need to do something for me. And I'm willing to misrepresent the truth to get ahead. And Peter says, so now you're dead. That's their problem, and it works out for them? No, not at all. But what about for you and me? Why do we have such a hard time being selfless? What stands in our way? One way of thinking about it is what are the things that we say to ourselves to justify our continuation in not being selfless, to justify our own selfishness? There are a couple things. I think the first one that I would mention to you that at least I face is I'm worried about my resources. I'm worried about my own personal resources. You know, my question is, if I give too much away, there won't be enough left over for me. And so I'm worried about my resources because my resources tend to run out. If I'm too generous, my resources will run out. And so if I give too much, I will have nothing left. And if I have nothing left, I'm going to become just like the people I'm giving money to. And I don't want to be like them. Yeah, I, I would rather be me than be like them. And so as a result, I don't want to help them become more like me. It's a weird kind of justification for selfishness, don't you think? The second worry I have, so resources is one of my worries, the second worry I have is responsibility. I'm worried about issues of responsibility. Well, listen, you've been on an airplane, maybe. At least you know the old-time joke about airplanes. When the thing comes down from the, the whatever the thing that holds the oxygen masks, you know, when it opens up and it comes down, the oxygen mask is there. You've probably heard this before. You're supposed to put the oxygen mask on your dog first, right? And then when, if your dog is okay, he can take care of you. No, you put it on yourself first. That's what they all tell us. I remember my first airplane flight, and they said, put the mask on yourself first. And at the time, I was one of the children. And so they were telling my mom that she was supposed to save herself instead of me. And I thought that was wrong. 
I thought that was not going to be the way I wanted things to go, you know? Not that I wanted my mom to go before me, but still, I just felt like, you know, isn't this women and children first, right? Isn't that the way, the way it works? Anyway, you all know the principle. You put the mask on yourself first so that then you are capable to help multiple people if they need help. That's, that's the principle. Take care of yourself first so that you can take care of others. I worry about responsibility. If I take care of too many other people, then I don't have the respons- I don't have enough assets to care for more people. I have to take care of my own needs first. Because after all, I don't want to be a burden on people like that other person is on me when they're asking for help from me. I don't want to be like them. I want to be like me. And, you know, if I'm if I help them become like me, then I become a little more like them. And I don't I don't know if I want that. See, this is the weird place we find ourselves in. It has nothing to do with responsibility. It has nothing to do with uh, resources. It has everything to do with a particular attitude that we have. And the attitude is not selfless. It's self more. I focus on myself more. In fact, here's one of the things that I just want to let you know I think is the biggest problem when it comes to our selfishness. It's that we focus too much on our own efforts and completely forget the sacrifices of others. We focus too much on our own efforts and completely forget the sacrifices of others. Let's just take my scenario. So I've got some resources that can help this other person. And because I have the resources that help this other person, I somehow think that I'm responsible for my own resources, that I have my resources because of my efforts. All of my efforts have brought about my resources. And as a result, I don't know if I should help them because they're my resources and it was my effort. And I completely forget all of the people who sacrificed to put me in the position where I am. I forget all the sacrifices of my parents and all the things that they had to do to get to the place where they were so they could meet meet each other, so they could even have me eventually, so that I could be born. I forget all of the sacrifices that they made when I was a child to bring me to a place where I could be healthy and even able to walk. I, I don't even remember all of the sacrifices that they made financially to put me through college and all the other blessings that I've experienced. You guys have no idea the sacrifices that my wife has done for you guys to have a spiritual life if it came about in this context. I mean, every one of us is the recipient of hundreds and thousands of hours of sacrifice. And the arrogant selfishness of thinking that I, by my own efforts, have acquired my position is just absolutely, remarkably dumb. So here's the deal. I think our problem is that we need to stop thinking of selflessness as selflessness. Selfless is too much of a negative word. It means less of me, and I don't, I don't like less of me. Uh, I kind of want more of me, and so I want to give you another word that's not a less word. I want to give you a different word. And let's just pick the exact opposite of selflessness. I'm going to give you a new word to think about. Let's make it others fullness. Instead of selfless, let's be others full. Because here's the principle, I think. If I'm trying to be less about myself, I'm still about myself. I'm still thinking about myself. 
I'm still bemoaning my own sacrifices. I'm still worried about my own resources. I'm still bothered by my own use of my own time. But if I shift the focus to be others full, now I'm not thinking about myself at all. I'm just trying to be someone else's blessing. And this is a biblical principle that I think is incredibly important. I want to share with you a couple passages of Scripture. This first one comes from Jesus himself. He says something amazing that I just love to think about. Jesus says, I tell you truly, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Yeah, it might be hard. Yeah, you might give up something. You will gain a hundred times as much. I, I want you to think about a guy named Barnabas. So he sells a field, right? He sells a field, he gives the money to the church. How many people were blessed by that? At least 3,000, right? And then in a few years, what happens is there is a persecution that shows up in Jerusalem. And all of those people get scattered to go back to their hometowns. They go to their hometowns. Barnabas is left in Jerusalem. He's got no field anymore, right? Maybe he's still got his home, but he's got no resources beyond that. You know, he doesn't have that field anymore. He liquidated it. He sold it. What if Barnabas gets in trouble? Well, I happen to know 3,000 homes in the ancient world that would be willing to take him in. You know? I mean, that one act of sacrifice has put him in a family 3,000 fold. Here is the amazing thing that people don't get about making sacrifices in the context of the church family. We are called to care for each other. That's the authority. God says care for each other, love one another. That's God's command to us. How we care for one another is still kind of up to us. It's our freedom. We get to choose to do this. We get to live selfless lives. And here's the thing. If I am others full, then I will pour out to you and you will pour out to someone else and someone else will pour out to someone else and someone else will pour out to someone else. And if all of us are doing our jobs of being others full, guess who gets filled? Jobs of being others full, then we all benefit. But if all of us do the self thing, then I don't get filled at all, except for what's already here. I'm bored with that. Others full is the way to go. Now, in the ancient first century church, a few years after this event, a famine came. The 3,000 people had all gone home. A famine hits Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem church was financially destroyed. They were in such dire straits that you might ask the question, well, Jesus, you made a promise that they would have a hundredfold as much. Jesus, did you fail in your promise? As a matter of fact, not. Because by the time the famine hit, there were churches all over the ancient world. And a guy named Paul decided that he was going to go on a fundraising campaign throughout the ancient world to collect money for the people in Jerusalem. 
because of the sacrifice that they had made to get this whole thing off the ground, Paul goes throughout the entire ancient world that was known at the time, collecting money. And he says these words at the end of his collection in, in talking about the collection that he's making. I'll put it up on the screen. Paul says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. In the Christian family, when the Holy Spirit shows up, we recognize that the resources are infinite. We recognize that the responsibility is not really ours anyway. The responsibility is what God is doing in our midst. And so as a result, we can be selfless or even better, we can be others full. And so I'm going to end my time with you today by giving you three very specific actions that I think we can be doing in this family to be others full. I'm going to encourage you to practice others fullness in, first of all, your personal preferences, to be others full in your personal preferences, especially when you come to church on Sunday. So let's say uh, some of you come to church because you really like what we do here. You, the, the, it feels good to you. You really like what we do here. But I need to let you know something. Some of you are here today, and you're looking around the room, you're experiencing our time of worship, you're, you're experiencing the, the fellowship in the lobby, and you're thinking, this is really cool. Some of you are thinking, I like this one worship gathering thing. My personal preference is I'm really kind of liking this everybody together kind of deal. And I'm letting you know, it ain't going to continue. Get over your personal preferences if you like it. If you don't like it, well, then, you know, we're, we are going to give you a little bit of your personal preferences. But we're not going to continue the, the one worship gathering thing because we have a bigger picture, and that bigger picture is we want to reach people who haven't yet been reached, which means we need to have more empty chairs so that we can reach the people who haven't yet been reached. And so all of us need to be others full when it comes to our personal preferences. There might be a Sunday when I talk about something that you're like, well, that was kind of boring. I already knew that. It wasn't for you. It was for the people that we're trying to reach. And there are going to be some Sundays where you're going to be here and you're like, I really thought that was challenging. I didn't like that so much. That was for you. And so... You know, those, those sorts of things happen, but we need, to be, we need to be others full when it comes to our personal preferences, when we gather together for church. We are not here for ourselves, we are here for ourselves and the world. Secondly, I want to encourage you to be others full with your resources, with your time, with your treasure, with your talents. I want you to think about what is it that God has given to me that I can use to be a blessing to someone else. I encourage you to think about supporting the ministry of this church financially. We've got some big dreams and big hopes to accomplish, but a lot of those things can't happen if we're just going paycheck to paycheck, so to speak, month to month, just paying bills. And so I encourage you, if you want to know any more about that kind of stuff, come on Tuesday night or talk to me personally, and we'll, we'll have coffee and we'll talk about what we think God is leading us into. But I want to encourage you to be othersful when it comes to your resources, not just by giving to the church, but in general, in other ways as well. And here's the last one. I want to encourage you to be othersful when it comes to your presence. When it comes to your presence. Don't say it out loud, but I want you to look around the room. See those pretty people. And I want you to think this thought in your mind. Does it feel better to you when the room is full or when it's empty? 
Does it feel better to you when the room is full or when it's empty? I've got to tell you, for me, it feels better when it's full. When it's empty, sometimes you laugh better because you're not so nervous about the other people. But uh, I, I, like the, I like the room when it's full. It's got energy. It's got enthusiasm. I'm also much warmer now. But, um, <laughs> but I like the room when it's full. And I've got to let you know, a lot of other people do too. Because when there's someone sitting next to you, when there's someone else sitting in your row, you feel more welcomed when we do the question time. When there's someone sitting in your row, you feel more enthusiastic when you hear them singing well. Because all of you sing well. <laughs> Mostly. <laughs> I have a microphone that's above the, the, above the, the audience right over there. It's, you know, there's, so I get to hear some. Anyway. But I know, I know, I know. Listen, when someone else is in your row, whether you know them or not, and you see them taking notes, you're like, wow, God is speaking to someone. Every single time you encounter the awareness of someone else in this room, your experience of what happens in this room goes up a little bit. You're a little more connected with what God is doing. You're a little more connected with what God is doing in the lives of others. You're a little more enthusiastic about what God is doing in the life of this church. And so when you show up and someone else has shown up, you are encouraged. When you show up and no one else has shown up, you are not encouraged. That's the way we were designed to work. And so let me flip the script. There are other people who love it when you're in their row. There are other people who love it when you are here. And so some Sundays you're going to wake up and you're going to be like, I just don't feel like going to church. And I'm going to say, get other full about it. And say, I'm going to come to church for the person who's sitting in my row. I'm going to come to church for the person who needs to see me there. I don't have to put on a fake smile. I can be real, but I need to be here so that God can bless me and so that I can bless others. Others-fullness is a big thing. But I'm not making these rules. I'm just asking you to embrace it. Because after all, we're the people who've been, who are the family of the forgiven. We're the people who've received the Spirit of God. We're the people who are heirs of the King of Kings. We should be the happiest people on earth. We should be eager to get together. We should be the selfless people on earth. We should be the others-full people on earth. And so I encourage you, to embrace this idea that the Holy Spirit of God wants to move in you, wants to move in us, wants to move among us. And as we begin to be more others-full about it, we will experience him more and more. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.